Welcome to the podcast series from the Voices in Leadership webcast conversations at Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. You may also watch a video of this event at www.hsph.me voices. Good afternoon and welcome to Voices in Leadership. I'm Eric Anderson, the Deputy Director of the program. I have the privilege of introducing our distinguished guest today. The youngest ever U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations, Samantha Power has been a leading voice internationally for principled American engagement in the world. Ambassador Power began her career as a journalist, reporting from such places as Bosnia, East Timor, Kosovo, Rwanda, Sudan, and Zimbabwe. She went on to become a columnist for Time, an award-winning contributor to The Atlantic, The New Yorker, and The New York Review of Books. Her book, A Problem from Hell, America in the Age of Genocide, won the Pulitzer Prize and the National Book Critics Circle Award in 2003. From 2009 to 2013, Ambassador Powers served on the National Security Council as Special Assistant to the President and Senior Director for Multilateral Affairs and Human Rights. There she focused on issues including atrocity prevention, UN reform, LGBT and women's rights, the promotion of religious freedom and protection of religious minorities, and the prevention of human trafficking. From 2013 to 2017, as the U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations, Ambassador Power became the public face of U.S. opposition to Russian aggression in Ukraine and Syria, negotiating the toughest sanctions in a generation against North Korea, lobbied to secure the release of political prisoners, and helped mobilize global action against ISIL. Ambassador Power recently returned to the faculty at Harvard, and she's writing a book, The Education of an Idealist, which will chronicle her years in public service and reflect on the role of human rights and humanitarian ideals in contemporary geopolitics. Before I turn this session over to today's interviewer, Sarah Bleich, Professor of Public Health Policy, Please join me as we welcome Ambassador Samantha Power to the Voices and Leadership Series at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. Thank you. Welcome, Ambassador Power. Great to be here. We are really looking forward to hearing from you. I want to start with a question about your path. And as you think about becoming U.S. Ambassador to the U.N. and all the different forks in the road, what do you think were the critical points that sort of set you on that career, traje that career trajectory to get that job? Well, the first thing I would say is that had I been so um, ambitious or presumptuous to think I could ever be UN ambassador, I would not have made any of the choices that I made. Uh, so for young people especially, I think the idea that you can game things out in a scientific way, um, at least in my experience, that's not the case. I went always um, by smell, you know, and by, by what I felt uh, would leave me better off after my next thing, knowing more with a new skill. Um, my first, uh, the first example of that was I was working in Washington as an intern for somebody who cared passionately about the fighting that was going on in the former Yugoslavia. And I kind of maxed out in terms of how much I could learn with him. He was an amazing mentor. He had been in the U.S. government for more than 30 years. Morta Bromowitz is his name, and he ran the Carnegie Endowment. And I was his assistant, and because he cared about Bosnia, I cared about Bosnia, not because I had any independent kind of moral fervor or anything, but then once I learned about ethnic cleansing, I was so horrified. And I thought, okay, I want to learn more. I want to do something constructive. What can I do? Nothing. <laughs> I have no skills. Um, I'd been a sports reporter in college, so I'd been, in a sense, a journalist of a sort. We were in the same building as U.S. News and World Report, the Carnegie Endowment was. I went banging, you know, on the editor's door and said, you know, I, I've been practicing server creation and I know a lot about uh, how to be an intern for someone who cares about what's going on over there. 
can I freelance for you if I go over? And basically, he just gave me his card and said, look, call me, but you know, you don't have any clips, you don't have any, and I said, no, I do, look, the Yale women's volleyball team. You know, look. <laughs> and um, so in the end, he gave me enough of an orange light that he would at least take my pitch. I learned how the lingo at the time. And, um, and so I went over there and then did one, realized I could do it, and then decided to move over there. Then I came back and I went to law school, but while I was in law school, I was puzzling over the Bosnia experience and how all these people had died and we didn't seem like we'd done enough and I wanted to put that in historical context for my own benefit. So I went to the library, it's a classic story, and looked for the book that didn't exist and for a paper for a class basically began to try to answer the question that there was no book answering. And that then was mission creep. It became the nucleus of what would become the book A Problem from Hell. And then that was a celebrated book, which was very surprising because initially I wasn't, couldn't find a publisher for it. But then when it came out, for whatever reason, it hit a chord. And Barack Obama found his way to the book uh, not long after it came out. He had just been elected to the U.S. Senate. That was a real bright spot at that time, at, you know, at a time where our foreign policy was under uh, scrutiny, to say the least, uh, because of the Iraq War and torture and so forth. And um, I had just become, finally had gotten a faculty appointment at Harvard, and I called my mother and I said, I'm, I'm leaving Harvard to go work for this first-term senator because I want to learn about how the Hill works and you know, whether there's a way you can make a difference on foreign policy from Congress. And it turns out the answer, you know, by and large, is not so much. Um, <laughs> but but I, I ended up leaving Harvard. And again, the Machiavellian thing to do probably would be to be at a, a great perch and, and keep doing what I was doing. But I, I just always felt like there was something somewhere else um, to learn once I, once I felt like I had the lay of the land. And so then working for Obama, kind of the rest is history. But it was all, again, this question of, I, I think the, the, the goal of knowing something about something and just making sure that whatever your next thing is is going to be additive, that you will take something away from it that you didn't have before, and that that will then in turn make you better at, in my case, trying to um, change American foreign policy in modest ways, and, and in other people's case, you know, to provide public health benefits or to be a doctor or whatever it is, but what, what is the additive dimension of the next thing rather than how does this get me on some you know, hierarchy to to a, an elusive goal uh, that no one can script. So on the issue of international human rights, which you've done a ton of work in and sort of is your hallmark, it's an area that a lot of Americans don't understand very well. And so one of the things you did at the UN is you humanized the issue and you brought in people that had been victims of human trafficking and let them tell their story. So I'm curious if there's one thing that you wish all Americans knew about international human rights, what would that be? And do you think that humanizing the issue is something that would actually resonate strongly with people here? Well, this was me kind of bringing my journalistic impulse, having been a journalist then, um, into diplomacy. And it, it, it grew really out of finding that international statecraft w had become pretty robotic and very removed from the people whose welfares were at stake. You know, so if we we're talking about Syria chemical weapons, you know, some UN official kind of going on about statistics and um, uh, familiar arguments about something that should never become familiar. You know, just there's just a sense of rote interface, and weirdly, even on fresh issues, rarely an expectation that 
the world's assembled powers were actually going to have a breakthrough on a given day. Just a sense of, you know, this is what we do. I read my talking points. You read your talking points. Our talking points may not have changed in recent months or years. <laughs> um, you know, Madeleine Albright might have been reading similar talking points 20 years before, and, th and there wasn't a sense that that was patently wrong. And, and so one way to mix things up was to put the talking points away. And, and you know, luckily, I was comfortable with, with the issues that we were working on. They were ones I'd been working on for my whole career. Luckily, I had a president who supported my independence of spirit, uh, and which isn't always the case. Um, you know, sometimes one's UN ambassador or secretary of state is very you know, uh, cabined. Um, so I was very lucky. But then the other way was to bring the people whose fates I was trying to champion you know, into the chamber. So if it was Syrian chemical weapons, and I knew I was just going to meet Russian denials that the Syrian government had even used chemical weapons, and I was going to have my talking about they were going to have theirs, I brought in the doctors who actually treated the, the, the victims of chemical weapons attacks. And they showed videos of these kids who had just been literally frozen in time no cuts, no nothing, but asphyxiated basically by this poison uh, that the government had dropped. The doctors spoke themselves of having been in the hospitals when the planes flew overhead, you know, seeing uh, the markings on the planes or on the, the munitions that landed. And that just was a much harder set of arguments for the Russian uh, ambassador to refute than ones that I would have made in my capacity as an American. Um, and so whether on Ebola or, as you mentioned, on trafficking, bringing them in, I think, was just shook people out of this, this, rote, and it, this rote way of interacting, but also this default expectation that we wouldn't succeed. You know, I went in every day. I likened it. I don't play golf at all, really. But um, but I likened it for some reason. Came into my mind when I was in my job. To every day I came in, it felt like I was stepping up to the tee. Because even though I don't play golf, I have stood at tees before, and I always <laughs> think that I can hit it really far. And it's it just looks so. It's just right there, and there's no one in your way, and um, and that's what it felt like. And then it turns out people spend the whole day getting in your way, and it's very hard <laughs> to make a difference. Um, and golf is hard too, but. Um, but the point is, I think, getting just shaking people up, uh, shaking the system up a little bit so we started to listen to one another and remember, again, why we got in the, in, into these jobs in the, in the first place. So in terms of the American audience, yes, I think hearing those stories is important. Meeting those people mm -hmm. is much more important than reading those stories. And that's true generally, of course, if you look at why gay marriage has gone from being um, you know, politically very difficult to uh, push forward to now, um, you know, being supported by a majority of the American people, it's, it's really not so much that people read stories about people who were coming out or it's that their cousin or their neighbor or their boss or, um, and I think there's a lesson in that, in that, you know, actual human interaction breaking down kind of ideological conceptions and seeing the people whose, whose fates are, are, in some cases, hanging in the balance, I think that's what we have to do. And that means taking advantage of institutions like this one and making sure that people get those exposures as well as trying to change the UN culture. So I know you loved your job. Loved it, loved it, loved it, loved it. And what are you most proud of, looking back on that time? You know, for loving it, there, there aren't a lot of clean wins in, in diplomacy. So one of the things I'm very proud of was my 
small role being part of the president's team in fighting the Ebola epidemic. Um, the president, when there was full-on fear frenzy in our country um, because we'd had um, an Ebola patient die of Ebola in Texas and nurses got infected and it was clear the protocols were, were not as tight as they should have been at the beginning, politicians particularly began to freak out citizens began to, to freak out as well, looking, of course, also to their leaders to be calm, but instead <laughs> it was a doom loop of sorts. <laughs> and um, President Obama decided to send 3,000 you know, public health workers and soldiers into the eye of the storm, and I was incredibly blessed to be his UN ambassador. So he says to me and to Secretary Kerry, okay, here's what we're doing. Now you and the rest of your teams go build a global coalition because I don't want to be, I, you know, these 3,000 is a huge contribution, but it's not going to be enough to deal with this problem. So, you know, on the one hand, it was one of the darkest issues and the most terrifying issues uh, to see, you know, enveloping a, a, a part of the world. I mean, imagine my Guinean, Sierra Leonean, Liberian, my friends who are my colleagues, like their, their families' lives were hanging in the balance they were seeing their countries disappear, and the projections were that 1.4 million people would be infected. Uh, this was in September, you know, the following January, and into that environment, you know, the president both made his commitment, sent his forces, and 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 funded the deployment of health workers, but but also again tasked us to to mobilize this coalition. So we did. Everybody in the U.S. government, all hands on deck, and we got the numbers, you know, of Ebola patients down to zero, and those countries are now back to way further behind than they would have been. They'd already, they had, were just coming out of conflict and beginning the sort of post-war <coughs> recovery of their economies and so forth, and now it's, of course, set them back uh, greatly. But it was amazing to see the international system work late, as it should. <laughs> um, and there's so much to learn about why it was late, but I think for the purposes of understanding um, geopolitics and uh, humanitarianism and life, the way it worked is the way it will have to work. There has to be a lead country that, you know, steps up, frankly, is willing, a, a leader who's willing to absorb political risk. Um, you know, he or she has to be accompanied by a group of relentless um, aides who believe this is the most important thing on earth and who don't take no for an answer, which I think all of us were. And then, of course, above all, citizens of this country and other countries had to step up and do the brave thing and, and sacrifice themselves, risk themselves to go into the, into the eye of the storm. So it's hard, that's, I'm incredibly proud of, of what President Obama did and, and to, to be a part of that but so many lives were still lost, and these societies are still the trust that broke down when you could no longer hug somebody when someone cried, and that suddenly became a threat because the tear could, you know, was a fluid that could infect you. I mean, it's just gonna take years uh, to, to build all of that back up, but, but it could have been a lot worse. And so that, those are the kinds of victories you get in, in government. It could have been a lot worse, and so here's what we, <laughs> Um, but it was, um, I think it's instructive also for the collective challenges we face going forward. There, you, without American leadership, and unfortunately we're in a period where there's a lot less of that, and leadership of a different kind, I think in, in, in a more isolationist and xenophobic direction, but the international system doesn't just work on its own. Someone has to captain the team, and, and the Secretary General of the UN can try that, 
but he doesn't have a bank account or a soldier or a health worker of his own. He, he's got to draw on the, the and harness the resources of member states. So we need America back in the game uh, in a hurry. So you were on the ground in West Africa during I that did 2014. Go, yes. And I'm curious how that experience informed the U.S.'s response to the Ebola outbreak and, and any other lessons <coughs> learned from that experience from a leadership perspective. Well, I think from a leadership perspective, what I would say generally, um, but bracketing a little bit the health hazard dimension to it, is that for me to lead, I always felt the impulse to get close. So I, I, for, for me to be trying to mobilize other countries at the UN with a bunch of statistics and even with a graph that had this uh, you know, horrific um, curve of infections lying ahead, I felt, um, I, I didn't feel that remove from what was happening on the ground emotionally, but I felt I could be a better diplomat if I had been there, if I had borne witness, if I knew what was working. And by the way, within President Obama's cabinet, of which I was privileged to be a, a member, we were still litigating ourselves, coming up with our approach. I mean, with the 3,000 is one thing, but what are we going to do about Congress's call to require health workers to be quarantined for 21 days after? I mean, that's a, they're about to come back and they've got the, their control of the purse strings. How are we going to work that? So there's more cred, you know, you, if you've been to a place, you have more credibility, sometimes wrongly, sometimes you don't deserve that, that bump in credibility, but usually you do because you've actually talked to the people who are doing the hard work of trying to implement your direction on the ground. So I think getting close is always to a leader's example, uh, to a leader's benefit. It also sets, I think, a positive example at a time when fear is omnipresent, not only again in our, in an, in our political circles, but also among our citizens for you know, a person to go into the eye of the storm and say, look, there are these protocols, and if you obey these protocols, we can do this. And, and so, I tried to, that's what President Obama was saying by sending people, but the fact that also a personal envoy of his would be, you know, in effect doing it as well, I thought was important for the families of people whose, whose loved ones were going over. I would note that um, my, my son went at the time to the most international school in New York City, and all of the parents, I thought anyway, did things like this. You know, they were uh, relatives of peacekeepers or diplomats, uh, you know, mediators, whatever, health workers, and um, and yet my son, who had appealed to me not to go, saying, Mommy, it's Bola, you'll get Bola. Um, <laughs> he, was, he was six at the time, <clears throat> reinforcing my husband's argument, which is that I shouldn't go, because again, this just shows you the fear was everywhere. You know, it wasn't just, a, even if you could see the statistics and you knew the protocols, fear is fear. And, um, but I was like, no, no, it'll be fine. And of course, I was worried I was doing something crazy uh, as well, but it was fine. And the, the, the pros on the ground you know, took amazing care of us. And I think it had the effect that it did. But when I got back, it was actually months later, I learned that a group of parents had gone to the school administrator and asked that my son be kept home for 21 days, wow. which luckily they had rejected. But, um, but just it's a reminder of, of of often what you have to buck. I was lucky because it was the most international school, and they didn't they didn't heed that. But it's one thing for me to say, oh, and I you know I was trying to send an important signal. Imagine if the news media had picked up that my son had been quarantined. I would have done a disservice to the cause because people would somehow assume that that was warranted, and therefore that you know stricter 
you know, quarantines were required across the country. So, so the point is you do your best with the, with the information you have on the front end, you do your cost benefit, you try to uh, inform yourself as best you can, and sometimes that requires getting out of the bureaucracy and into the, into the, the field, which is where my heart always takes me. So another area that you worked a lot on is climate change, which we think a lot about here at the School of Public Health. And I'm curious to think about the impact of climate change on healthcare systems in developing countries and what the implications are there, and then add on the fact that we have pulled out as a country from the Paris Agreement and what the implications might be in developing countries. Well, one sort of important um, normative and strategic um, not achievement, but um, piece of business that was locked down in, in the last administration was the articulation of these sustainable development goals. And that's the first time we have seen the international system completely living and breathing the recognition that environmental sustainability and economic development and public health and you know, clean water and, and education, everything that these are seamlessly connected. And certainly, if you look at the items on the agenda of the UN Security Council, which doesn't do development traditionally or, or t touch much on development, but the crises that we are confronting, many of them, not all of them, whether it's Boko Haram in the Lake Chad region, Cameroon, Nigeria, Chad, Niger, Lake Chad having shrunk <laughs> You know, by 90 whatever percent, uh, you know, in recent decades, thereby putting you know horrible demands um, on on the land, which is which can't sustain the agriculture that is needed, and destroying the fishing industry, therefore leaving lots of young men out of work, therefore making extremism more appealing to those people. There's that Darfur, similar thing, the amount of uh, land. Um, that was arable, just shrinking, that causing fights over land that then causes conflict that then descended into genocide. So many of the kind of what looked like straightforward peace and security challenges, terrorism, genocide, requiring peacekeeping or, um, you know, uh, holistic, hopefully, uh, counterterrorism responses have their origins or at least their enabling environments are ones related to development and climate. So the UN system, the aspiration of it is that the peace and security and now this um, more, again, comprehensive uh, economic and social uh, that the strands, that those will come together and that governments will get better at coming up with comprehensive uh, solutions. We have the, the language down, we have the theory of the case down, but the implementation remains incredibly balkanized within governments and even within the UN. And so, for instance, when we tried to, with our colleagues, bring the issue of climate change to the UN Security Council to play up its peace and security dimension, the developing countries, um, by and large, with exceptions, but said, no, you can't do that. You can't do that because de development issues and climate issues belong in the UN General Assembly. I'm like, yeah, I get that. <laughs> Let them be discussed in the General Assembly too. <laughs> the planet is getting, you know, destroyed and, and is boiling up and it's affecting your countries more than it will affect ours in the long term. I mean, many of these countries, you know, it could be a small island state or it could be, again, one of the very African countries I mentioned um, facing these challenges. But, there, but this, you know, kind of, again, formulaic, not quite turf warfare, a little bit turf, but just more, but it, but, 
but the charter says that these issues belong here. It's like, yeah, the charter says a lot of things, but the people who wrote the charter didn't envisage, you know, our planet warming to this extent and all of the repercussions in all of the areas that the UN works on from health and education, again, to issues of war and peace. So again, we've got the framework. I think the next step is for also for governments to merge those conversations. You know, we, we made some headway with John Kerry and Gina McCarthy, uh, our EPA administrator and our Secretary of State, you know, going to the Paris negotiations together, Ernie Moniz from the Energy Department going together, this, us pr presenting this uh, united front and them learning from each other within the system as to what should comprise our Paris commitments. Um, but a lot of countries are not yet in that place of seeing the domestic and the international linked and seeing, again, traditional issues of diplomacy together with these, uh, you know, what used to be seen as the softer issues uh, of development. And then in terms of our withdrawal, all I can say is, um, you know, some I get asked a lot about American leadership and this really is the period where we all have to find a way to redefine America and America is what President Trump does. And when you're President of the United States, you have a huge amount of power, huge resources at your disposal. Certainly the ability to, um, with swift executive action, do things that are uh, very destructive as pulling out of the Paris Agreement um, is. Um, it, you know, should it come to pass, the actual pulling out, of course, uh, there's some time built in. Um, but, but we're America. America will get defined also by what our governors are doing, what our mayors are doing, what our private sector is doing, the extent to which we constituents are pressuring some of the more reasonable members of Congress to, to allow, for instance, for funding for the Green Climate Fund, which helps developing countries, you know, strengthen their powers of adaptation and their resilience and so forth. I mean, are we, can some stuff still even be happening within the executive branch? that's a little beneath the radar, but that ref that is a form of leadership. It isn't what we would wish, because when we lead, you know, with the pulpit and, and with our withdrawal, that of course is a form of leadership that others can take their cue from. Um, as we see, as the president invokes fake news left and right, we now see leaders all around the world talking about fake news. Um, we, we lead regardless of the form our leadership takes, whether it's of a, of a multilateral, um, collective security kind or if it's a, a, a leadership toward you know coming home and being much more insular and, and letting the problems out there uh, get worse, that's still leadership. But we also lead with the different checks and balances within our society, doing different things with the different actors in our society. I think sometimes we forget that. We're sort of used to thinking that there's, you know, that our leadership globally, particularly at a place like the UN, gets defined by the administration that's in office. And I think what we're seeing, and not just on this issue, on a whole host of issues, is that that leadership is now coming from other parts of our society. So that's to the good. And we just need to be spurred on by that and recognize that our voices, we haven't lost our voices, we haven't lost our ability within our communities to be doing things that can have global effects. So I want to end with a more personal question, which is that you've got two little kids, and I'm curious at your time as U.S. Um, ambassador to the U.N., what they taught you, or what motherhood taught you that made you better at your job? Oh, that's a great question. Um, well, let me say that they, uh, my son in particular, because he was older than my daughter, who was four when we when we uh, left government on January 20th, um, but my son was seven, and so these were sentient years for him. Um, we, I 
as a mother, because I was on my BlackBerry so much and on the road so much and at, in negotiations so much, when I was home, I always tried to bring my work home in ways that I'm sure some mental health professionals here will tell me are not, <laughs> were not the most adaptive, but they were what I, I stumbled my way toward doing. And so, you know, my son knew all about uh, President Putin and Ukraine and Crimea, and, you know, he saw on the map the size of Russia, and he's, you know, he's just like, I just don't understand why he needed Crimea. I do not, <laughs> that makes zero sense, you know, and so, that, so to some, you know, they say, you know, through the eyes of a child, like, like in a way, nobody had ever put it quite that plainly. Um, but I would try, you know, the, we, my, I've taught my kids, and I recommend this for any pa current parents or future parents, but I, I taught my kids a lot through these Mr. Men books that are the, the British series and there's Mr. Greedy and Mr. Chatterbox and Mr. Mean and and so I it may be the case that in order to relate those books to to my life and what was going on at the UN it may have been the case that some of the UN ambassadors were were given nicknames it, it may have been the case but but I think the best answer to your question is um, and this 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 was really really powerful for me I I when when Russia did go into Crimea and into eastern Ukraine. I, I, I had to be at the Security Council. We had emergency meeting after emergency meeting, and I was coming home later and later. And I was having these very striking showdowns, at least striking to me, but even covered on live TV in Ukraine and even covered on live TV here at the beginning of the conflict, where I was, my journalistic background was coming in handy, and I was able to go toe-to-toe, -to -toe, and it was sort of surreal because we had thought that these kinds of showdowns in the Security Council were behind us. Um, you know, it was like, felt very Cold War-like, very like when the Soviet Union, you know, went into Czechoslovakia or, you know, crushed the rebellion in Hungary. You know, suddenly we were in a kind of, at least something that had overtones of those prior things. And so there I am, and I'm on the spot, and cameras are rolling and I've got to say something on behalf of America. I'm America um, and I have to do it right and I have to stand up for these people whose, whose countries are being ravaged. And so when it went well, which it did on occasion, at least rhetorically, you know, I would, I would come home and I'd come home late and I'd wake up my son because I'd have missed our normal time together and I'd say, we'd get a bite to eat with me and you know, he'd go the next morning to school with these black circles under his eyes. and. And um, so we'd sit, and I'd say, so this is what happened. So this is what the Russian ambassador said. And, this is, and my husband was back at Harvard teaching, so he was my companion, my son. So I said, this is what the Russian ambassador said, and this is what mommy said. You know? <laughs> and, and, and anyway, we'd go back and forth. And, I mean, some version of this story happened, I'd say, three times. But, but the very first time it happened, I'll never forget it. And, it, you know, and I was like, and then this happened. And, and then mommy said this. And, um, and he just looks at me and he goes, so? So did it work? And I said, well, what, what, what do you mean exactly? And he, he said, did they leave? Did they leave Ukraine? And I, I said, not, not, not yet. And, you know, life is, but, but I think the lesson in it is, and this is what I always tried to teach my team, but I had to be taught it myself and my son, is the scoreboard, you know, the scoreboard is not your inputs, mm -hmm. you know, or your, or your eloquence or your, or your demarche, or your even your resolution, you know, which technically does something, puts a sanction in place, or sends a peacekeepers, or you know, the impact is the it, the scoreboard is the question he's asking, which is, you know, has it worked? Has it worked for people in the world? And so I think I think kids can keep you honest 
if you if you sort of trust them with the basic dynamics of what's going on, they can they can kind of pull back from what one can get caught up in and then remind you, you know, what, what really counts. So thank you, Ambassador Power. It's been a pleasure. Great to be here. Thank you. Thank you. This has been a Voices in Leadership production at Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. You can find the complete video of the event at www.hsph.me voices. We encourage you to share Voices in Leadership.